all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We're taking your calls today during the hour to to, uh, discuss any kind of concerns you might have about your health or the health of someone near and dear to you. You can always call us right now at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or if you're not able to call, you can email us at remedy at mpbonline.org. Hope everybody's having a great week. Certainly beautiful weather. We continue to... uh, see a little bit of increase in the temperature. We've got two spoiled in April and uh, most of May up to now. I, I think it was this weekend when that uh, humid air came in from the Gulf. It certainly felt like a, an early Mississippi summer a little bit more, but I hope everybody is at least taking the time during these difficult times to um, to enjoy the outside weather. It's certainly a, a great time to do that if you have the time. You know, a lot of you at home, a lot of you are dealing with uh, financial issues, Uh, I I would encourage everybody, as we've always done, look at the resources that you have. Call people uh, that you wouldn't necessarily call. Check on them. Make sure that other people are checking on yourself. Certainly, if we're not able to get out as much, I know we're starting to ease back into that uh, as a state and as a nation. Uh, But as we do that, uh, take care of yourselves, not just physically, but mentally and emotionally as well. Certainly, there's a lot of calls that I'm getting when I'm uh, doing my telehealth visits right now with my patients Uh, And a lot of those issues are anxiety and depression uh, that are probably at least, uh, you know, partially causing uh, caused by the uh, COVID-19 situation that we're in. Got a couple of uh, emails uh, this week that we wanted to uh, to touch on and uh, certainly lots of time for your calls. Should you have uh, a question for us? But let me just uh, dive into the first email. So there was a question about nasal saline flush. So nasal saline flush, that's just salt water is what saline is. And basically that's most of the time that is used for uh, either uh, allergic rhinitis, that's uh, allergy symptoms that involve the nasal passages, or in some instances, chronic or acute sinusitis. That's an actual infection in those sinuses. And the question was, if, uh, if you're using a nasal saline, would that help with the transmission to help prevent the transmission of COVID-19? So uh, when you, if you've never done a nasal saline wash, basically there's a, a couple of different ways to do it. Some people use a neti pot. Some people like myself use a, a nasal applicator bottle to sort of squirt that saline up. And it's not just the mist spray that you see, uh, just the normal nasal saline mist. The flush is actually a large volume of water that you sort of flush out those nasal passages. There haven't really been any studies looking at whether or not this decreases the risk of getting COVID-19. What I will say is if you have chronically inflamed nasal passages, that's probably theoretically at least going to put you at a little bit more 
uh, increased risk of contracting it just because those nasal mucosa, uh, the surface of the interior part of the nose and the upper part of the throat where COVID-19 likes to attach itself and cause uh, the, the infection, uh, and that, that's going to be a little bit more susceptible. I don't think it's probably going to decrease your risk of it. You still should be practicing social distancing when you're out around other people. And, um, and also, if you, have, um, uh, you know, if you have a mask to wear, those are things that I would continue to do. Theoretically, it might a little bit decrease that, but there's always a chance that you're just going to flush that back further in the nasal passages if you've been exposed to it. So nasal saline, I wouldn't stop using it. It's probably not going to increase your risk too much, but uh, certainly not going to prevent it either. I think we have our first caller on the line. I think we have Terry from Tupelo. Good morning, Terry. Hey, Dr. Jimmy. Love your show. Thank you. Uh, I, had, <clears throat> I had something happen. I actually fell on my elbow on a concrete floor back in January. Uh, you know, it, swole, it got swollen, and I put ice on it, and it pretty much went down. But now there's – and I haven't gone to the doctor because of all the stuff going on, and it, it's more uh, aesthetic than it is painful. Um but there's a knot about the size of a golf ball. It's I call it squishy um, because it, it it's it's squishy. It doesn't hurt unless I like really bear down and put pressure on it. But uh, I'm just wondering, you know, who I should see? Uh, should I go to my general doctor? And is there fluid in there? Or you know, what what's that? What is that? I guess. Yeah, Terry, that sounds like you have a lecranon bursitis. Uh, so it's fairly common. <clears throat> Trauma to the elbow can, uh, can trigger that. Uh, there are some inflammatory conditions that can cause it, but with you having the injury, I, I would say this is probably due to that. So we oh, have yeah. these bursa, which are sacs of fluid, uh, all around, you know, different parts of our body around joint spaces. And they're really cushions. So they help with the normal cushioning of joints to help them uh, to sort of absorb the pressure that you have. So there's one in, in and around the elbow joint that if you have trauma to that, sometimes that can swell up and you don't have an increase in the fluid within that sac. You described it beautifully. Uh, it's a squishy sac, so it's actually filled with fluid, so it's going to feel like that. Most of the time after the, in, the uh, initial injury, there's not any pain after that. Uh, it's just, the, as you said, the aesthetic of it couple of ways that this can be dealt with. You will need to see a physician for this. A lot of uh, family practice and other primary care physicians uh, are pretty skilled at, at aspirating that, about drawing the fluid off. Sometimes that'll take care of it. Sometimes it has to be repaired surgically, and that would ha obviously have to be done by, you know, an orthopedic surgeon. Easy surgery to do, really an outpatient procedure. Uh, sometimes they can, you know, they can even do that in our local anesthesia. It's not something, Terry, that you need to worry about right now uh, as far as getting something done. A lot of people will, will notice that if they keep their arm elevated, they're not, it's not going to fill up as much. It's not going to be as uh, prominent. And then sometimes, you know, uh, icing it down daily can help, too, with some of that. But if, it's, if, it, if you're this far out, it's probably, you know, it's probably not going to be better uh, by just doing those things, you may have to see somebody to either aspirate that fluid out of there and help it sort of collapse back down or to surgically repair. But it's just sort of an out-pocketing of that bursa into the subcutaneous tissue. 
um, that uh, that's caused by trauma. And can I can I quickly tell you a meme that I saw about the coronavirus? Just real quickly, it's clean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Thank you for that. <laughs> person, person from Mississippi says uh, says I hate that this coronavirus started during allergy season because I don't know if I have five days to live or I need to take a clear of it. <laughs> That's right. Hey, from previous allergy, uh, you know, seeing patients with allergies and having them myself, sometimes in the past, it's certainly not anything to compare to coronavirus infections, but I have felt that way. And anybody who's had allergies probably has felt like at some point, this is, I'm so miserable. Uh, you're right, though. That's a challenge because uh, we do, you know, we see a lot of it this time of year and we are screening for coronavirus for patients that we, that we see in person now. And it's, you know, it's difficult to sort of tease out which uh, which is which. So, hey, Terry, yeah, thank you for calling and uh, for thank, you for, thank you for listening. So uh, we're going to uh, we're going to go ahead and, and go to our uh, next caller if we have one. Uh, let right, me I'm answer the phone. Gonna, G- I'm gonna uh, go ahead and, uh, oh, OK, so I'm going to go ahead and do a uh, do an email now. Um, we had a little bit of a slowdown. Most people know I'm, I'm Skyping this. So, uh, sometimes we have, uh, uh, you know, uh, our equipment is working 90 plus percent of the time. Sometimes we have a little bit of an eruption, interruption in that. So I did have an email question about, uh, the, the, uh, to compare and contrast, uh, the incidence of typhoid Mary. Now this is a historical infectious disease uh, true story that happened back in the early 1900s, 1906. So uh, typhoid fever uh, was very common in the early part of the 1900s. Uh, it was most often caused by, um, by unsanitary conditions, uh, mostly with poor neighborhoods, lower socioeconomic neighborhoods. But in 1906, what they noticed in New York, that there were several well off people who had access to good toiletry facilities and weren't getting in unclean water sources. But there were a number of people who were coming down with, uh, with typhoid fever. And uh, there was a doctor who's really the hero of this story. Everybody remembers typhoid Mary, but there was a doctor and epidemiologist uh, at the time. Sanitation, I think, is, is uh, sanitation employee, I think, was his official title back then. Dr. George Soper. And he was asked by a prominent family who was letting out their home as a bed and breakfast, and they had several people come down with typhoid. They really wanted him to solve their problems about where was this coming from before they had to shut down their business. So uh, Dr. Soper had a lot of knowledge about typhoid fever and how it's transmitted. There was a lot of knowledge of, of, uh, you know, sort of the epidemiology of it in Europe. But through a lot of questioning, he was able to track down one employee uh, Mary Milan, who was an Irish immigrant who, uh, very poor when she came to New York, but she could cook really well. And she worked for several prominent families and restaurants, uh, in the early 1900s. And then, uh, she, uh, you know, she, she became pretty famous for her, for what she, she cooked. Now, Dr. Soper knew that typhoid, if you cooked food, you weren't going to get it. So anything that got hot enough to destroy, uh, the, the bacteria, you're not, you, you basically did not get that. So, uh, but he did notice that in her case, she cooked, she made a, a dish that nearly everybody liked and was very popular. It was peach ice cream. So he was able to track down uh, this, this outbreak of typhoid fever to uh, Mary Milan. So he knocks on her door and he says, I need some feces, some urine, 
and some other samples. She shut the door, kicked him out of the house. He was able to get the health department to get the samples and found out that she was a totally asymptomatic carrier, which he knew had been described in Europe. Uh, now, this was very rare. Not too many people have no symptoms with that, but she was shedding uh, the uh, typhoid fever, uh, the cause of it, all over the place in what she was making. So long story short, <clears throat> she was she had to find a different line of work, tried to cook again, and uh, basically was, uh, was uh, placed under sort of semi-house arrest on an island uh, outside of New York. Um, so all that to say is you can, this is a good example, I think, with a comparison that our email uh, listener had, had suggested. Uh, typhoid Mary was unknowingly spreading this uh, typhoid fever to other people, even though she had no symptoms whatsoever. Uh, it's a historical uh, story that can help us to understand better the situation where we have today, where you can have coronavirus, uh, you can have COVID-19, have zero symptoms. You can have no fever, you can have no cough, yet you can be transmitting that to other people. And you can have asymptomatic carriers uh, that uh, can infect other people, which is why as a population, while we've taken some of the uh, measures that we have. And I know those have lots of downstream effects, particularly economic. A lot of people are struggling right now because of that. But that's the comparison with Typhoid Mary. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your calls about the health of yourself or any individual that is near and dear to you. Uh, if you have a question about medications, maybe new symptoms that you're having, maybe it's a diagnosis that you didn't quite understand you want to know more about it, you can always call us this morning at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can always send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. Don't forget about our website, mpbonline.org. You can go there and you can hear past programs. We try to archive those uh, for your listening, not just this program, but all of our uh, programs that are produced by uh, MPB Think Radio. Uh, you can also uh, you submit any kind of question you want at any time through that email address, remedy at mpbonline.org. We do try to share those <clears throat> on air with, uh, with our listening audience unless an uh, emailer says, please don't share this. Um, but uh, And then sometimes we'll have a show that's dedicated to uh, emails entirely, but uh, that's always a way 
that you can reach us. Let's go to uh, Mamie in Chickasaw County. Good morning, Mamie. Good morning, Dr. Stewart. Um, I'm an avid walker. I do a lot of walking on the treadmill and um, outside when there's the weather is appropriate. And lately I'm having pain in my heels. Someone tell me, heel spurs, is there anything or any remedy for it? Let me ask you a couple of questions about the uh, the pain that you're having. Is it worse any time of day, like in the morning or afternoon or night? Um, it's, it's, I feel it when I get up in the morning, but if I, you know, do light housework, it's not bad. But if I walk, I'll stay on my feet all day, I, it's, it's worse. Sure. Have you changed your shoes at all? Or are you wearing any high heel shoes? I don't wear high heel shoes, and I just ordered several pair of shoes with a good arch support in them. And okay. I've also got the arch insert, um, but uh, it's I can't. I've been ha it's been bothering me for about three months, and uh, I'm wondering if I should, you know, see a doctor or what. So it sounds like, by what you just told me, it sounds like it's it's probably something called plantar fasciitis. So yeah, uh, fancy I'm name, based, and heel spurs is another thing that people use to describe that. So what happens is the plantar fascia, that's a, a fibrous sort of springy type membrane that helps to keep the arch in our feet. And uh, if, you, uh, if you over stress that, you can get some pain where it where it attaches to the heel and you can almost pinpoint it. Most people say, I'll ask them in the office, hey, point to exactly where it's hurting. It's usually on the bottom of their foot, but it can also be towards the back. There are a couple of other things around that area that it could be uh, that involve things like the Achilles tendon. But usually, you know, the thing I like to ask is that question about when does it hurt the most? And if a patient says, it hurts the most when I first get out of bed and my foot hits the floor. And then as time goes on throughout the day, it tends to get a little better, which is exactly what you said. That's almost always plantar fasciitis. Uh, it is something that is, is almost always, uh, you know, you can treat it. Uh, stretching exercises do help. Uh, so if you stretch out that fascia, that's, all, that's basically what's happening throughout the day. The more you're up and around on that foot, the more that fascia gets stretched out. It's when it's tight when you sleep at night, because most people, they point their toes when they sleep, that fascia sort of contracts down. And then that's why it hurts when you first get out of bed, because you're putting pressure on the, on the part where it attaches to the heel. Um, things like ibuprofen can help uh, with the pain, but the stretching is probably the most important thing. The other thing is sometimes massage helps at the area on the bottom of your foot. A lot of people will freeze some water in a styrofoam cup, and then use that as sort of a roller that they roll over the, uh, the arch of their foot. And that can help decrease the inflammation and also can kind of stretch it out. My favorite stretch for plantar fasciitis is you sit down, either in a chair or on the floor, you throw a towel, you, you grasp the towel in both hands at each end, you throw the towel over your toes, you extend your leg, straighten it out, and then pull back on those toes with the towel. So the toes should be pointed up towards the ceiling and then back towards you. And you should feel that stretch in the bottom part of your foot. If you do that several times a day, that can help along with those other things that I mentioned to try to decrease that. 
If it's still hurting after that, you can call your physician. They can do some probably physical therapy first, and they can do some stretching and additional strengthening exercises. Almost always this gets better. Um, you know, it can be extremely painful, though. I've had it, uh, you know, it, overuse injuries can also be something that can, uh, that can cause this. Probably you're going to be able to walk, continue to walk through it. Um, uh, but certainly we want to, you know, want to address it so that you can get back out there walking. So Mamie, thank you for that question. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say thank you very much. I do notice when I take ibuprofen, uh, anti-inflammatory, uh, drugs, it, it, it doesn't bother me as much, but I didn't want to overdo that either. Yeah, you could take that at least, you know, for a week or two just to see if, um, if it gets better, and then if not, I think that's at the point where, you know, along with those stretching um, uh, exercises, if it's not, I think I'd call your, your doctor about it. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you for listening to the call. This is uh, Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning taking your calls. You can reach us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Billy in Benton, Mississippi. Good morning, Billy. How are you, How are you today? Good. Thanks for calling. I have a question for you, kind of unusual. In the term COVID-19, what does the 19 stand for? 2019. Yeah, so it's not that, it's not that uh, you know, we name things for all kinds of crazy uh, reasons. And in this yeah. case, it's the, and it's actually a COVID, uh, this coronavirus, uh, uh, novel coronavirus was one of the earlier names for it. Uh, coronavirus SARS-2, which is severe acute respiratory syndrome, and this is the second sort of strain that we've noticed. But it's a, it's a lot different from past things. But COVID-19, the 19, as far as, as I'm aware, is for, um, is, is for um, the, two, the, the year 2019, which is when it was, um, when it was first described. It was first described in 2019. It was that, you don't mind my asking, was that in, in China or somewhere else? Or do you know? No, it was in China. So Wuhan province in China. So that's sort of central China. Uh, yeah. And it was, uh, at least in the literature, uh, you know, it's starting to debate about the actual date, but it's in uh, early to late November is when most people think in that city uh, there was the first cluster that was, that was no, noticed. I understand. That's what I want to know. I appreciate your time. Oh, sure. Thanks for calling. Yeah, that's, we name stuff uh, sort of crazy sometimes in, uh, in uh, medicine, sometimes trials, the, the things that we, the medication trials and intervention trials that we have, they have all kinds of crazy names uh, that can mean different things. We love doing that kind of stuff, don't we? All right, let's go to, I believe it's Belle in Yazoo City. Good morning, Belle. Good morning, and thank you for taking my call. I just had a statement, but it, it's related to something I'm going to ask. Um, you mentioned typhoid fever. In the late 40s, when I was in elementary school, every spring, uh, Dr. Sherrod Towns was a county health officer, and he would come to all the schools, and it, they'd line us up, and uh, we'd get typhoid shots because most of us went swimming in creeks and ponds. And um, this brings up another idea. <clears throat> I'm just wondering, <clears throat> do you think in the future that our health, the county health departments might be more utilized 
Um, I know they ha- a lot of places they have limited days, and uh, I'm just I know the state is way behind in tax collections, but I'm just wondering if the health departments might be utilized more in the future with this pandemic. And uh, I'll listen on the radio, and thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. Yeah, that brings up a good, uh, you know, certainly we have those historical um, infectious diseases that came through either as epidemics or pandemics uh, in the past. Uh, The local, state, and national, at least in the United States, um, health departments and health services certainly played a major part in either treating those or eradicating those. Some of the other diseases that were very common in the first part of the 1900s, uh, the 20th 20th century, they, you know, that depended a lot upon the information that we gathered through local, state, and national health departments. Uh, But then also what they did with immunization campaigns, with campaigns to try to improve living conditions in different uh, in different areas. And that has to be specific to the population that you're treating. You can't just have one um, one plan for the entire United States. Certainly there are there are overarching plans, but the specifics of it, I think, goes to your point. It has to be down to the community level, to the local town level and then the state level. Um, our health departments are, are pretty different from, say, back in the 40s and 50s and even before that when they were pretty robust. With uh, And I think this is sort of a wake-up call that uh, even now we're sort of struggling to have all the data that we need to be able to identify people. It would be nice to have everybody tested at least once, probably multiple times in a population so that you could do contact tracing, which is uh, we identify those people who are uh, who are um, infected with the virus or carrying the virus, that would be optimal. And that way we could limit the spread of it, even if we didn't have uh, didn't have a, a treatment or a vaccine. So that would be the most effective thing. So I, I'm, a, I'm sort of in your camp, uh, Bell, that I think that would be a good idea to look at that. Certainly, I hope that we're looking at the role that those organizations could play uh, to uh, to gather that data, to use that data, really um, to be prepared should we have something like this uh, to hit us again, uh, which we will. I mean, time is uh, you know time has told us that about every forty or fifty years we have something on this scale. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
Southern Remedy on MTV Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, taking your calls and emails, reading some of those about any kind of health issues that you have questions or concerns about. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Kevin, I think you had, uh, oh, we got, we got Kay from Memphis first, don't we? So Kay, uh, glad you called this morning. Excuse me. I told him that with you, I'm just uh, K from Memphis. With Delta, I'm Chainsaw K from Memphis. <laughs> I, yeah, I told him once. Um, he told me to get somebody to dig something up or cut it down. I said, I'll just get my chainsaw and cut the damn darn thing. I, I, I don't think I said the bad word. Anyway, darn thing down. Well, I hope so not. Okay, what's your health question? I am known as Chainsaw K. I don't even okay, have to tell okay. where I'm from. Okay, this is not about my chainsaw. This is about me. You know, um, I have a chronic problem now with nausea, and it's not to the point of throwing up, but I just feel nauseated. Before I get up in the morning, I feel nauseated. And in one of my ventures to the uh, emergency room, the doctor gave me a prescription for uh, chlorothiazine or something. I don't have it in front of me. You probably know what, what I'm talking about. Recommended for nausea and vomiting. And I have taken that prescription, and it helped some. But this morning, before I even got out of bed, I was so nauseated. I never throw up, but I, it's just that chronic nausea. Before I went to the emergency room, I didn't go for that. But anyway, um I called my doc, my cardiologist, and the nurse suggested that I take uh, milk or magnesia or something of that sort, which I guess helped a little. But why? what's up with this nausea? Well, I will say that as a child, I suffered from nausea. I suffered from motion sickness. I could not eat anything really sweet for breakfast because it nauseated me. So I have a history of of that kind of nausea. So what's up with this nausea? Yeah, okay, so so there's plenty of things that could cause nausea. So a couple I'll mention and then sort of what I, I think you should do. So the first thing and probably the most common are things related to the GI tract. And that can be anything from that slows down the digestion of food in your GI tract for a number of reasons, or it can be anything that's causing some irritation to the GI tract. Uh, now, if it's if it's going on, you know, it, certainly most people have experienced either eating something bad or had a virus that uh, caused that nausea and maybe some vomiting. This sounds like it's not that. This is more chronic in no, nature. No. Uh, an, an irritation of the lining of the stomach is one of the most common things. Or gastritis or reflux can certainly do that. And that may be what's going on because you mentioned the milk of magnesia. If that helps, certainly that sort of coats the stomach and uh, decreases the amount of acid that's irritating it. Another thing that you might consider taking is an over-the-counter anti-acid, something like omeprazole uh, or pantoprazole. Uh, those are, are common over-the-counter medications I, that can I, do, I do, I decrease do the acid. I take omeprazole. Yeah. Okay, so that may be something. If it's and the other thing is, that, you know, most people say, well, it may be something related to my stomach. Well. It's good that you're talking to other people, including your cardiologist, because sometimes nausea can be associated with other things in the chest, like the heart or even the lungs uh, or other tissues. It might even be the esophagus. So if it persists, I would say you either need to see your, your primary care doctor 
they may recommend some further testing by a gastroenterologist. They may want to look and make sure you don't have an infection. Sometimes you can get a bacterial infection in your stomach that can cause the gastritis uh, that needs to be treated a little bit differently than just with antacids. But that would be the next thing that I would do uh, if you're already taking the, the omeprazole is just to give them a call uh, so okay. that they can do some further tests. I have been to a GI doctor uh, in the past. I've never gotten, I call him an upper and downer, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and do it. So I already had on my schedule to call and, and make an appointment with with him. And uh, I figured that is probably it, but this has been a childhood thing. I could not eat anything sweet for breakfast. Yeah, we had that's our probably, own honey, that's probably, and, honey that's and molasses. Yeah. And I could not eat anything sweet for breakfast. Right. It's probably, that's probably gastritis. I think you're right on the money with, uh, with going to your, uh, you know, gastroenterologist first about that. All right, Kay, thank you for calling. Uh, we're going to go to our next caller is Megan in Jackson. Good morning, Megan. Good morning. How are you, sir? Good. Thanks for calling. Okay. Well, listen, you know, while I was sitting here waiting on you, I got to thinking this may be more of a legal question than a medical question, but I'll run uh -oh. it by <laughs> So, okay. So, you know, if I understood the uh, state health, I don't know if he's the epidemiologist or, uh, you know, head of the health department. Anyway, long story short. Dr. Dr. Paul Byers. I believe so, yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I understood him to say mm -hmm. that if people would wear if everybody would wear their masks, they could stop the spread of, of the COVID virus by 90%. Have you heard that? Yeah, they've done studies to, and the, an important thing to keep in mind is that uh, a mask like you're seeing out, whether that's a cloth mask or whether it's a manufactured mask, uh, those, those can help. <laughs> it helps better to prevent the spread from whoever's wearing it to somebody else. Yeah, so which brings that's me to my real concept. question. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay. So, so my so ultimate the 19 percent is basically that is based off of some studies that were look at those masks, and it depends on the type of mask and how you're wearing it. If you're wearing it correctly, I've seen a lot of people wear masks incorrectly where their nose is showing, and that's not going to help. You either have to wear it or not wear it. Um, but the, if you wear it and everybody did that, that that's based off those studies that show that you could decrease the spread of it. So that's, that's where that number comes from. Okay. So my real question is this, if it, okay, so we're in a, we're in a healthcare, uh, crisis, right? Correct. So if, if that, if that, if those statistics are actually accurate and we can only assume that it is then why and is the state not mandating people, everybody wear a mask? And if they don't, there should be a penalty or some sort of uh, something, you know, that they should have to pay because they could actually put someone's life in danger if, you know. Yeah, I think, you're, it, I think you're seeing that in not necessarily statewide, but in some cities like Jackson. And certainly some of those, uh, you know, Oxford, that's another one too that uh, uh, I've, I've seen that has pretty strict uh, uh, guidelines around that. And of course, you only do that if you're out and about. I see people in their car by themselves. You don't have to wear the mask if you're in the car by yourself. Uh, but if you're going to be around people and you can't socially distance yourself now, honestly, if you are running on, uh, you know, some public trails or in a park, 
and you're more than 12 feet away from somebody or even further than that, there's no reason why you have to wear a mask if you're by yourself or if you're with people in your family that you live with. Uh, that's that's I think that's part of the of the problem with uh, with, you know, with with our state and uh, local leadership is you have to make those kinds of decisions. Well, here's the recommendations. Certainly you don't want to uh, to mandate things to the point where you're going to you know disenfranchise people. But that does bring up a good point, Megan, about what we'd rather see is everybody to think about. It's not necessarily for you, because I've heard a lot of people say, you know, I don't care if I get it or not. I, I disagree with that. I think you you should really look at the people and the data that's out there. Um, you know, but if you can protect somebody else, that's the reason why I wear a mask, even more so than if I get it. It's to protect my patients that I'm seeing, to protect my family members, uh, certainly uh, individuals who are more apt to have more problems over the age of 65 and chronic health conditions. Those are my patients that I'm seeing. Uh, so that's the reason why I would do it to help uh, decrease the spread. So uh, I hope people are taking it, you know, that through that kind of lens. Uh, I think if we if we really look at what makes Mississippi uh, great and the USA great is that we look out for one another. And this is one of those times I think that we need to be doing that. All right, we're going to go to our next caller. Uh, I think that was John. Uh, I forgot where he was from, but John, give, Kevin's giving me the, the thumbs up there. Good morning, John. Uh, good morning. I had a question about the prostate. Yeah. Uh, have you heard of surgery that it can be taken out through the perineum and it, it uh, would cause less um, less chance of nerve nerve damage? Yeah. So the there's there's ways to do that endoscopically. So that's where they stick it. It sounds terrible. They do they stick a tube up through the urethra, and then they can use various techniques, whether that's laser techniques or that's uh, you know, uh, ablation of the, of the prostate tissue. Uh, the old way of cutting the prostate out, uh, where you have a huge scar and lots of damage, because there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of vascularity to that area. You can have post-op bleeding, uh, from the old way of doing it. And certainly a lot of nerve damage. Most people had at least some of that. The newer methods try to spare that as much as possible. It depends a lot upon, uh, you know, having a skilled surgeon doing that and doing some of the mentally invasive techniques. If I had it and I was considering doing it, and actually I just talked to a patient of mine yesterday uh, who is about two months out and their symptoms have totally gotten 100% better. They're not going to the bathroom all night. This wasn't for prostate cancer. It was for prostate enlargement. But they have a very good outcome from the surgery with very few side effects. That's probably the way I would do it. I, again, with any kind of surgery, you want to make sure you talk to your surgeons about complications, about their comfort level with doing it, how much they've done it. Probably wouldn't go to a surgeon uh, to do it if they've only done five cases of it. I would want to hear hundreds or even thousands of cases uh, and uh, that they're very, uh, you know, that I, it's not bad to ask surgeons about complication rates personal complication rates with surgery. Certainly, I would want to know that if I were getting it. But excellent question. Lots of newer ways to deal with prostatic uh, hypertrophy and with prostate cancer for that matter. So uh, ask a lot of questions of a urologist. Uh, don't feel like you have to rush into that surgery. 
I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, taking your questions and calls. Got a lot of good, good questions and calls, a lot of different topics that we're covering this morning. That's what makes this show great, particularly to, for me, is that uh, all the calls that we get about all kinds of different things. We got John on the line right now. John, I'm uh, glad you, you called this morning. What's your question or comment? I don't know. My urine is orange. I mean, bright orange. And I've been to several doctors, and uh, finally one of them just told me it was a mystery. Huh. Have they? I'm sure they've done a lot of tests on, you know, what might be causing it. Um, tell me some of the doctors that you've, you've gone to. Has it been, have you gone to see a urologist, internal medicine doctor? What are some of the different doctors? I went doctors? to my cancer doctor, to the urologist, and I went to the hospital because it's a clinic down here. They told me it might be an occluded a gallbladder and that made me nervous i went to the emergency room and had them to check my gallbladder and my pancreas and my liver and everything seemed to be fine yeah so uh, tell me john what kind of like, foods do you eat do you eat a lot of uh fruits and vegetables yeah a few you know that that i'm just thinking about more of the common things since they you know you've had a lot of physicians look uh, the color of your urine can change for a number of reasons. The most common thing, of course, is how concentrated it is. Uh, and, and, of course, that varies. Most of the time, it's not persistent. Uh, some of the t- Sometimes I'll ask my patients who have darkened urine, if it's red, if it's orange, to, you know, just to drink a little bit more fluids throughout the day, mostly water, uh, to see if that doesn't, uh, that doesn't clear it up. If not, um, it can be some of the more serious things that at least would show up pretty readily on a urine sample or on other tests would be breakdown products of red blood cells or of of muscle, which I'm sure that they've looked at that both in the urine and they've checked for various substances in the urine. Once you get past that, really the two other categories are medications. Sometimes they can cause your urine to, to, uh, to appear orange or the foods that you eat. So the reason I ask about uh, fruits and vegetables is because uh, carotenoids, which are you know sort of beta carotene, yeah, that's right. where we get that can actually in some individuals uh, make your urine appear orange. If you had all the tests done and they've all come back negative mm-hmm. and it's still orange, I, I would not necessarily. That's not a bad thing. Um, that's but, what uh, I wanted you know, to hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it may just be orange because of that. And if you're eating a lot of those foods, which are good for you, that's fine. I'm not really. I'm not eating enough because it's too hard to get fresh yeah. vegetables when you're uh, sheltering. Yeah. 
end. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It is difficult. But that may be that may be a cause of it. But, uh, you know, a lot of people will have uh, red blood cells in their urine, too. And there's just a little bit of leakage in the in the filtering mechanism. And once you, you know, once you see a urologist for that and they've looked in, in for some of the more serious things that could cause it, probably not a big deal. So I would say if you've seen them, it may be something that you're eating, but it sounds like you're not eating a whole lot of it. Probably wouldn't change what you're eating just because of that. Uh, if it gets worse, go back to see them and maybe they'll do some more tests. But uh, sometimes the color of the urine, you just can't quite pinpoint that. So thank you, John, for that, uh, that question. Certainly a good one. Uh, Urine color used to be uh, a lot more important uh, with physicians. Used to have some extensive training in that. Different smells, different the way things looked. Uh, um, certainly, that's uh, odors. Uh, that that was much more of the differential diagnosis. Now we have some tests that can help us out with that. Dr. Jimmy got about three minutes left, and so I thought I could slip in one of my questions, and that is, and I've actually talked to you about this in person when we were doing in-studio shows. I had surgery uh, for lipoma about uh, March of 2018, so I've got a little bit of small uh, scar on the back of my neck, and it itches occasionally. It doesn't ever appear to be red when I look at it, but a lot of times it'll itch. Uh, for a day or so and then stops and then maybe comes back a couple of weeks later. I don't think it's anything I need to be concerned about, but is this that unusual that a scar might continue to give you a little bit of itching even this late after having surgery? Yeah, that's a, Kevin, that's a common question about scar tissue healing. Uh, and uh, there's all kinds of different cells are involved uh, with a scar like that. So surgical scars, this is a common symptom to have uh, chronically after that surgery. Uh, it doesn't have to do so much with, of course, we want to, you know, we always ask questions, do you have redness at the scar, any kind of discharge at the scar? Uh, if the answer is no to those, most of that are just the types of cells that are, uh, even after it's healed up completely, there's still a lot of stuff going on underneath for months, sometimes years, as that scar gets sort of remodulated with the tissues to try to make it stronger uh, to try to cut down on all the damage that was done, uh, you know, through that through that surgical incision or even a cut, you can have the same kind of thing. Some of the cells that have help in that rebuilding of the tissue and laying down collagen and other uh, other tissues and scars, they can release substances that cause itching. Uh, and there's not much to do about that. Sometimes some massage at the area. I know in some places it's a little bit hard to get that can help. If it's if the itching is really really bad, uh, topical steroids. I've used that occasionally. Uh, I don't like to do it a lot just because it thins the skin, you know, chronically around that scar tissue and could uh, could uh, decrease some healing long term. Uh, oral antihistamines can sometimes help, uh, but generally speaking, it's more of a nuisance. Uh, the massage I think does help in keeping it, you know, sunblock those kinds of things, so it's not getting irritated uh, over time. Very common question. Usually it's not uh, necessarily related to uh, any kind of infection. It's more of just that normal healing with scars over time. All right, so I've only got about 30 seconds left, so that's good. So, And, and fortunately, it's it's high enough on my neck to where I can scratch because, you know, nothing's worse than when your back itches and you're doing all these contortions and trying to get to it, and, and, and you never can. <laughs> Absolutely. Although, you know, you can get some of those massage that they make now are, uh, you know, you can get them at uh, any kind of like Dick's store, Academy, those kinds of stores, or you can get them online, actually, uh, a little bit cheaper. 
I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform.